Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. And even as I start this, I realize I forgot the ice for my foot. Um, I, I don't know what happened. So let me tell you a little story and then we'll get into your questions. And if you are new here, welcome. My name's Katie and I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. And every week I answer your questions. So it must have been Friday after work sometime. I think I know what happened, but do you ever have like a bruise and you don't know where it came from? Like that's me all the time, like on my knees or on my leg because we're in an apartment and we're moving, like I'm sitting at our dining room table right now and we move things around like the chairs and we have a little bench. And half the time when I'm moving stuff, I like ram my leg into something. So that's just me. Um, but anyway, I got up on Saturday morning and I was like, God, my foot really hurts. It's so weird. Like my heel I'm like so strange. And Sean, Sean's like, welcome to my world because he has issues. I don't think he has plantar fasciitis, but he like rolls his foot on a tennis ball all the time and does all these stretches so that it doesn't happen because it's super painful. And anyway, long story short, my foot hurts all day long. And then Saturday morning, I wake up and I told Sean, I'm like, I've looked at it and there, it looks like there's a bruise, but I don't know if it's like not come to its full color yet. And Saturday morning, I take my sock off and sure enough, right above my heel is a perfect circle of a bruise. And the only thing I could think happened is I was stepping around our coffee table because I'm like looking at it right now. It's like behind the camera and we have lights and I was like stepping over a footstool and around it and I stepped down on this little corner and it must have whacked, bunk right into the back of my heel. So anyways, I was going to ice it while I sat here with you guys because it's just been aching. Um, so there's a story that, you know, it probably, you probably don't care about it, but I just realized that I, because I was like, oh, I'll ice it while I do this. And then I forgot. So welcome to my brain. That's what happens. Um, but anyways, let me check in. How are you? What's happening? How is your week going so far? I'm actually recording this. It's weird to film this on a Monday. Usually I film them on Tuesdays and they go out on Thursdays, but how's your week going so far? I hope it's been a good one. We are cooled back down here in Los Angeles. It's only 62 today versus, I want to say last week it was like 85 which is really, really hot for us. We don't have air conditioning. So, you know, the struggle's real. But I hope you're doing well. I hope you do at least one thing today that brings you just the slightest bit of joy, um, lightens your mood a little bit. I know with ongoing lockdowns and COVID stuff and just just our world, right? It can get to be a lot. And so I encourage you to unplug a little, do something that makes you giggle, <clears throat> even if it's just watch funny TikToks or something, which I know is like not unplugged. But sometimes that's all I can do muster up myself. And so I get get it if you're there too. But if you can connect to someone in person or dance around your living room with goofy music on, go ahead and do it. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into your questions. And again, if you're new, welcome. Um, I asked for your questions on my podcast channel, which is on YouTube, and it's called Opinions That Don't Matter. You get into the community tab. So when you go to a channel, it'll say like about and videos. And one of those is community. Click on community. And on Sundays, now it's Sunday mornings, I ask for those questions. And I pull eight or so of the most liked questions. So if a question is similar to yours, give it a thumbs up. If you have a follow up question, you can ask it in the comments below that. Um, and then I pick two random questions that have nothing to do with the amount of likes. Okay, <clears throat> let's get into them. Now, the first question is, why is it that I can so desperately long for connection and friendships, yet I constantly mentally push people away and put up a mental wall. It's like I can't connect as much as I want to and I feel so lonely. 
There were a ton of comments on this, so I'll get into those and I may answer them in my answer to this, but I always write them, um, copy and paste them into my doc so I don't forget. So don't think I won't get to yours if you had a question that was a follow-up. Okay, when it comes to what I, it's kind of like a, what I would call a sabotaging behavior, right? We're like self-sabotaging. We want people to get close, but we don't want, so we push them away at the same time and like then we never get what we actually want, right? And that's kind of what this person is saying is like, I feel really lonely and I can't connect to people, but I really want it. But then even when I try, like push people away, like what gives, right? A lot of times this can happen. And one of the comments kind of uh, touched on this a little bit is this can happen as a result of an unhealthy attachment when we were young. Now, if you haven't watched, I would encourage you to go on my YouTube channel and just search or go onto YouTube in general and just search Katie Morton for attachment styles. My video should come up and you will see, and I'll talk about, you know, the four main attachment styles. It's like secure, anxious, avoidant. Um, and whenever we have a poor attachment as a child in the first like couple years of our life, it's, it's in the first year they really say, our attachment is formed to our primary caregiver, usually our mother, but not always, right? Everyone's different. So it could be an aunt, it could be a nanny, it could be a father, it could be an uncle, it could be anybody, right? <clears throat> Another uh, child, like one of our siblings who's older. Um, so anyways, we form that attachment for better, for worse. And sometimes if our parents like don't come when we cry, or sometimes they come and sometimes they don't, that can make it really difficult for us to know what to do and how to trust ourselves in our environment. And we can have, you know, an unhealthy attachment, which can lead to issues like the one that we're discussing right now, which is this push pull of friendships and relationships where we're like, I want you to get, to get close. And then someone tries to get close. And because we're not used to it, feels super uncomfortable. Or if we have trauma in our past it can be super triggering, right? Last time I let somebody get close, they hurt me boom, we put up walls, the defense mechanisms, we push them away, or we mentally like shut them out and shut them down. Like they don't really know me. And then we, you know, make our escape. And I see this a lot with my patients who I've already kind of mentioned abuse, who have abuse in their past, but a lot of my patients who have borderline personality disorder or just other attachment issues. And I just want to throw that out there because if you find yourself in the, one of those buckets then you're like, oh, maybe that's where it's coming from. So maybe that's where it's coming from. And then let's get into these comments because I want to get into like how we overcome it. So one of the comments is like, what about when this push and pull for connection comes from growing up in an environment where your trust is constantly betrayed? Yes, very common. And you put up walls as a defense mechanism. How do you learn to let people in? So the, the real answer to how we overcome this is first, we have to see a trauma-informed therapist or attachment-based therapist. Those both exist in the realm of therapists. And I have plenty in my area. <clears throat> there was even one just across the hall from my old office um, who did attachment-based work. And so, and then you all met Alexa and she does trauma. She's a trauma specialist. There are people out there who can help you acknowledge what has happened and help you process through it. And if you don't know what I mean when I say process through is just talk about something, uh, work on it in therapy using different tools and techniques, probably some homework, maybe some, you know, inner child work or parts work or things like that, where we try to make sense of and put into a, a narrative form or a story form what happened to us and do it to the point where it doesn't have any emotional charge left, meaning we can just talk about it and it's not as upsetting as it was at all. We're like, yeah, that happened, you know, it sucked, but it, yeah, move on kind of thing. Um, and working through that, will allow us to rewire 
the ways that we interact with people, like these defense mechanisms and this uh, almost innate or knee-jerk reaction to like push people away or not let them get to know us. If we process through that trauma, that hypervigilance, like quick response slash reaction will go down and we will have the the space and the time to decide what we want to do. Does that make sense? Because so often when we, we're dealing with PTSD <clears throat> in any form, or even uh, those of you with borderline personality disorder, which can also have, P P uh, can have PTSD, but I just want you to know that both those things, BPD and PTSD, come along with kind of like these quick responses slash reactions to any kind of threat or upset in life. And we can be really impulsive and, and reactive and do things that don't actually benefit us, like push friends away, have our defense me mechanisms shoot up, and we shut down. And it can be detrimental, right? Because then nobody knows us and we can feel really lonely. And so working through that in therapy will lower the walls a little bit and give us this period of time to assess a situation, check in, and then decide how we want to respond or react, right? So in that case, like when people do start to get close to us, we can feel triggered. That's okay, right? Recognize it because we have that mindfulness bit you know, through therapy. So we have that recognition of, oh my God, this is upsetting. Why is this upsetting? It's reminding me of that time again. Do I think this person is at all like that other person? We're going to check some facts, right? Mm, no. Have they proven to me that they are trustworthy, at least to kind of get to know me more? Actually, yeah, you know, they've been pretty consistent and they're, they're pretty kind. And they've also shared a lot of personal things about themselves. Hmm. So I think it's safe to say this is okay. Yep, this is okay. Okay, let's breathe let's return to the conversation. Now, I know that that sounds like super slow and you're like, oh my God, am I just sitting there staring at them like while my brain does this work? No, I'm just saying that instead of having that automatic response where you shut down, we're able to look at a situation a little bit differently and not act as quickly. So we can hang in there a little bit longer and assess, you know, and then move forward. And that's really where the healing comes in. And if it is from like from what I've talked about, if you're like, it definitely isn't abuse. I don't think it was direct. Like I don't have any recollection of any abuse in my life, but maybe it's the attachment component where, you know, my mom worked away from home. So I had a nanny and then we switched nannies a lot. So I just didn't, you know, there were people I could kind of count on, but it was always someone different. Could that have, you know, fed into it? And the answer is yes. And part of that then is, is healing that talking about it in therapy and doing some of that inner child work, which I know we all hate so much. And when I say those words, you're like, no, 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 I don't want to. But trust me when I tell you that we all have an inner child, mine still tantrums from time to time. And part of the thing that I love about the inner child work, even personally, is that just acknowledging your inner child is a huge step. Recognizing that they are tantruming or they are acting out or, you know, making us think impulsive things because we're not listening to them. So the sooner we can at least just recognize and tap into that and think, oh, like if I'm talking to myself, I'd say like, oh, toddler Katie's throwing a fit. And you know why? It's because she doesn't feel validated. And she's worked really hard on this thing. And she actually feels put down. And so she's lashing out because she's like, I did this. And no, you don't even pay attention to it. You know, think of it. Think of it in that space that like that very non-adult, unfettered uh, response that we have. Sometimes we want to do that. Even as adults, we can have that 
knee-jerk reaction where we're like, are you kidding me? Like we, we want to do that, but we know it's not appropriate and we hold it back. We don't listen to it. We don't tap into where that reaction came from, seek to understand it. That's really what inner child work is. We don't even have to call it inner child work if that seems to be like an upsetting phrase for you. We could just call it acknowledgement of impulses and reactivity and trying to better understand where that's coming from. That's really what it is, you know, because that's where our inner child operates is in the fight, flight, freeze in our limbic system. It fires our amygdala all the time and wants to just rage because we don't pay it enough attention. And so the more attention we can give it and the more understanding and acceptance we can offer it by being curious about it. Why, why am I feeling this way? Why do I want to punch that person? Why do I want to scream and shout? Why do I want to be super stubborn and like, nope, can't make me like, where's that coming from? You know, be curious. It's healthy. It's helpful. I promise. Okay. So that's how we work through it. That's how we overcome it. And that's how we can get to a place where we don't just throw those walls up immediately. Now, and that was like answering the question, how do we learn to let people in? <clears throat> I do want to put a, throw in a caveat here that it's not all or nothing. I would, I always like, you know me, I'm not a fan of black and white, all or nothing thinking. It's never helpful, right? It, it always gets us into trouble. It's one of those things that just does not benefit us in life. It's better for us to live in the gray. So, and why I'm saying that is like, I don't mean that it's safe for you to just let anybody into your life and like, oh, I have these kinds of friends that, you know, I kind of know them. I'm just going to like tell them my whole life story and like let them in and fight through that defense mechanism. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is it is okay to take time uh, writing down like different levels of yourself, right? Like we're kind of like, uh, not to quote Shrek or anything, but like onions, right? We have layers and there are different layers of what's acceptable. Like people who know me in a purely business, per, like from a business perspective, only know certain things about me. Then there's people who are like casual friends who know maybe a little bit more, right? Then I have closer friends. Then I have like my core group and my family and Sean, right? And you get deeper and deeper into these layers of what people know about you. And I would encourage you just to think about that and assess where people are in those layers. And yes, they can work their way down into the deeper part of who we are and what we're about, but not everybody belongs there. Some people, it's okay to just have some casual friends that you're like, you chitty chat online with each other and you, you appreciate them and you care about them, but they don't have to know everything about you. You know, there's different, le different levels and different types of friendships and it's okay to have all types. Okay. Now there were more questions on this and one person said, um, this is another comment said, I feel like friends judge me for my choices. Like I can't be myself. I don't get it because I accept the people in my life for who they are. It's like I have to not be my authentic self in order to be accepted. Sounds like you have the wrong friends. It just feels easier at times to put up walls and push them away, though I desperately want to be accepted. How do I convince myself that I don't need to change me in order to have true friendships? This is a great question. And part of me feels like it's, again, it's doing the work in therapy, figuring out where this fear comes from, where acceptance, why is acceptance so triggering for you? Because it's clearly a button, it's a hot button. And maybe it's from childhood. That's usually my guess. Maybe we we're bullied as a kid. And so to think that that could extend into adulthood, because unfortunately, shitty people still exist. You know, bullying does not go away when you get older. I'm sorry to report. Um, but we can get better at navigating it, right? And how much we'll allow ourselves to tolerate. And so anyways, considering why this is so triggering for you, digging into that and also assessing your relationships. Like I did an entire chapter in my first book, Are You Okay? 
about this, about uh, relationships and communication and toxic relationships and how to avoid them, how to get out of them. And if you don't feel like you can be yourself in front of your friends because of something that they've done, number one, I'd encourage you to talk to them about it because, um, you know, we need to let them know and give them an opportunity to change behavior. If they are, in fact, a true friend, I believe that they will give it their best. <clears throat> but if they can't or they won't or they lash back out, that tells us what we need to know, which is they're not a good friend. And I should, we all should feel free to be ourselves with our friends. That's why we have them, right? If we can't be ourselves, it's like it's not actually beneficial. Um, and so I don't think it's so much convincing yourself that you don't need to change. I think it is being curious about why you feel you have to put on a show or be a pretend version of yourself. Like, why are we doing that? Where did that come from? When did it start? And can we then, through slow exposure therapy, start being more like ourselves? Can we start with one friend and just being a little bit different? Maybe instead of pretending that we're happy all the time, we let them know once that we're having a shitty day. Maybe that's how we do it. We And we gauge their response and we react or respond accordingly, right? And so it's a slow and steady. Again, it's not all or nothing. We're not in or out. We're just going to slowly ease in. Like, Imagine you're getting into a pool of water that is super cold, but man, it's hot outside. And so you want in, but you don't want to jump and just shock yourself like <gasps> nobody likes that. Well, some people do, but I don't like that. We want to tiptoe in, let ourselves get acclimated to it as we slowly work into it. So that's how we do that. Um, and then the there's a couple others. It says, as a follow-up question, why is it that I struggle to connect even when I attempt to open up? It's like I have a mental wall that is hard to break through and I fight against it. I think that if I reveal a certain aspect about myself or share something, the wall will break down a little bit. But even in these circumstances, I feel just as scared and closed off after the encounter. How can I learn to break past this mental wall? I think some of this could have to do with um, knowing ourselves and working on our own confidence. I had a video that went out <clears throat> back in, de in, in December. I'm going to say September. No, December. Um, about building your self-confidence. I talk about the importance of building mastery is what we call it in dialectical behavior therapy, where we work on one thing and get really good at that thing. And that can help us feel good about ourselves. Also putting positive out into the world, noticing our self-talk, all that stuff is very important. And that will help us feel more able to connect with others because we are able to connect and know ourselves. And I think a lot of the work that I talk about on here and on, on my channel, whether it's like journaling or you know, getting into therapy, like all of that allows us really to improve the relationship we have with ourselves, because that's our most important one. If I don't know myself, and I don't take the time to get to know myself, how can I share that with someone else? I can't, right? And so we have to give ourselves an opportunity, like, you know, to become friends with yourself. I know that sounds really weird. But I think it's really important that we, we, grow the friendship that we have with ourselves to a deep level there so that when we do meet others who could be a possible like good fit as a friend or a romantic partner whatever we're looking for right we know if they're going to fit into who we are and who we want to be more quickly because we we already like we know that we're not expecting them because that's when we get into unhealthy relationships, right? Is when we look out to other people and want them to show us what is best for us. And nobody knows that but us. And that doesn't mean that we can't, you know, have other people as wise counsel in our life where we ask them for, 
you know, their advice and their perspective. But at the end of the day, we make the decisions for us. And I think that will also, I know I've talked about this in the, was it last week's podcast about making decisions. I think that, again, that confidence and getting to know ourselves will help us and uh, make us feel better able to make those decisions more quickly and with more ease. And okay. Um, okay, then another question on another comment. This was a very popular one, obviously. It says, is this a default setting for those of us who that don't trust or have felt abandoned in our life? Our life? Um, it definitely could be. I don't, I mean, it's funny because I enjoyed the fact the default setting. I was like, oh, that's that's so poetic. But I also don't like it because the therapist in me is like, you know, it's it's not you're just going to fall into it over and over. We can change that. But then I thought about it and I was like, but you can change your default settings, right? And I think that that's really the work that we do in therapy is like, if we've been feeling abandoned, again, the inner child, the the trauma that we might have to process through, like, we have to give ourselves the space and time to to dig into that and to deal with it. And then we can open ourselves up to other relationships. Because if we do it too soon, before we've even begun to to be introspective and look inside and see what's happening. If we do it too soon, then we end up in unhealthy relationships, right? Or we want to rely on someone else to fill the void and we don't give ourselves an opportunity to do it ourselves. Or we'll be in these push-pull relationships and we feel like we maybe no one ever really knows us, right? We can get into those kinds of situations if we don't take the time to to acknowledge what's happened to us and, and then work to heal it. I'm not saying we can't have any relationships until we're healed. I'm just saying that starting that process is really key to building healthy relationships. Okay. And then the final uh, question on top of this question says, as a follow-up, how can I battle the feelings of loneliness that this makes me feel? It feels like I have made myself feel lonely by pushing people away, even if I want to have interactions with them, but I don't think I deserve to. How can I change it and stop uh, pushing people away? I think uh, when it comes to battling loneliness, I think part of it is First of all, it's our self-talk about it because the I find loneliness and like uh, self-deprecation, meaning just like putting yourself down, they're like best friends and they like to hang out together all the time and they make us feel even worse than we thought we could ever feel before. And so if we can at least acknowledge the thoughts that we're having and the way that we're talking to ourselves about our, let's say, lack of close relationships, and we can use some important and very uh, powerful bridge statements like it is possible that someone in this world could like me and we could become close friends or I'm open to the the possibility that I, I could cultivate a friendship sometime you know maybe in the next couple of years I'm open to that it's possible maybe I could believe briefly that this is, could take place right we live in the coulds the woods the maybes the possibility land and use those bridge statements um, and then ways to counteract loneliness. Actually, I have a whole video about it. If you just want to search on YouTube, Katie Morton loneliness, it will come up. Um, but I talk about ways to, I mean, it's tricky with COVID. And I don't know, I'd have to rewatch that video, because I'm not sure I'm just gonna put this as a note. Um, but I, I don't know if I um, like, it might be a lot of things that we can't do because of, unfortunately, because of COVID. But I think, um, I think some of the best ways for us to cope with it is like to first spend time with people that we already know and love. I know some of us won't have that, but I just have to throw that out there because that connection with people, like if it's a sibling, if it's an old friend from, you know, our youth and something like high school or younger, maybe we have 
uh, that one sibling or that one aunt or whoever, whoever it is, if there's someone who really knows us, that connection is key and it will really help us overcome that. And then you can also spend time in your community and volunteer. There's tons of opportunity for that, especially with COVID. If if you are not in a, you know, you don't feel like you're putting yourself at too much of a risk. I think um, offering to, to help out and help others. Again, it's kind of like that building confidence thing where, but it's also connection and it's just so healing. Every time I donate my time to anything, whether it's like uh, giving a talk, answering questions, going to the soup kitchen downtown. I used to do a ton of work um, at one of the the soup kitchens down there. Whenever I do that, I always feel like I get more out of it than than they do, you know? Um, and then there's online support groups. I've talked about that a lot when it, uh, it's called Hope for Recovery. And yes, I know it's religious-based, but the groups themselves are not. You can go to hope with the number four recovery.org, I think it is. And you can go into their calendar and see what they have um, available. And I think that that's, you know, those are just some of the ideas. But again, I have a whole video from back in the day that maybe will help. And that that will help you feel less lonely. And then as you do the work, under, not only how you talk to yourself, but how we interact with other people and all of that, that will help you stop pushing them away. Okay, that was a long answer. and But I wanted to make sure I got through all of the questions. So now we move on to question number two. <laughs> And that says, hey, Katie, I feel like this isn't a topic talked about a lot in the world today. So I'm hoping this gets answered. What are your thoughts about children who have a traumatizing sexual encounter with another child, such as inappropriate touching and fondling? Is this abuse? Or is it just considered play because both of the kids were young and the children cannot abuse and children cannot abuse other children? This is a great question. And I'm more than happy to talk about this like at whenever you need and however many questions. I do have one video in particular. It's probably five years old by now, but about child-on-child sexual abuse. And I think if you just looked on YouTube, and I, I didn't look this up exactly, and I apologize, but I bet if you looked on YouTube for Katie Morton, um, help I abused my sibling or sibling abuse, it should come up. Um, because I know that that's like the title is something like that. I can even vision, I can, in my head, this is, I don't know how I do this sometimes, but with this particular video, because a member of our community asked that same question that you're asking today, except for they were the perpetrator, they were the older sibling. Um, and, you know, so there's child on child abuse and there's sibling abuse. And this happened to be a sibling abuse scenario. But um, I remember the thumbnail. I can like see it in my head. So I know that those words are on it. Um, and if I can find it, I will link it in the description. I'll, I'll send it over to Sean when he does the edit. Okay, so now let's get into the question. So I just want you to know there's a video out there if you want more information and more thoughts, but I'll get into them right now. Now, um, a lot of children abuse other children because they themselves are being abused. That's something that um, we would get calls. I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but when I first got out of, I don't know if I was out of undergrad um, yet, but it was one of my first internships. And I think it was between undergrad and grad or around that time, I worked at this family services uh, place in my hometown. And we would go see children at schools. And we had family groups after school and after work. And it was just like a family center, like a therapeutic family center. Now, some people were, you know, they had to come to us because they were trying to manage things with child protective services, and they wanted to get their children back. So they were taking parenting classes and all that stuff. We did all sorts of things like that. Now, something that we would always look for and always ask about is uh, sibling abuse and child-on-child -child abuse. And 
schools would usually report it because some other child would say something, okay? Now, yes, it is abuse. Yes, you as the victim have a right to, you know, do whatever you need to do legally if, if that is something that you want to do. But also, I just want to validate the fact that you were abused, you were harmed, and you deserve to get care for that, okay? Usually this happens because the the perpetrator, the child that is harming another child, is, ab- is being abused or was abused themselves. And there's this guilt and shame spiral we already know associated with abuse. But then it goes even deeper when we know that we've done some things as children to other children. And, you know, it's like, it's hard for us to, to forgive ourselves. Okay. So anyways, there's so much to dig into when it comes to this. But I want you to know that, yes, it is abuse. Um, it, it's, you know, completely inappropriate and we should tell someone and it's not considered play. Play, the difference between play, so it is normal for children, just just to put it out there, because I think everybody, I think we should talk about this more. And I, I, I am happy to, like I said, I'm happy to continue talking about it. Um, but I think that a lot of times we forget that children are just curious by nature, okay? So if you took a shower, like let's say I had a, a, a baby boy and I was taking a shower with him when he was just a little toddler. And he asked about, you know, how come my parts look different than your parts? That's normal child. They're very curious. They want to know, you know, I can tell them like, oh, well, I have breasts and you don't, you know, or you have a penis and I have a vagina and that's just how we're different, right? And you can talk about those things and, and answer questions that they have because children are naturally very curious because they don't know a ton of things, right? They're trying to learn. And that children do like the, I show you yours, you show me mine type of behavior as a curiosity thing. Where it becomes more of an abusive situation um, is when one child uh, touches another child or the, you know, or vice versa, or it makes the children really uncomfortable and they feel like they can't say no when they feel when there's some pressure for any kind of sexualized act, it's abuse. Okay. And, and I know that's kind of hard for people to hear. And some people think, well, it was just natural curiosity. Again, I'm just going to push back a little bit on that because children don't know sexualized behavior unless it's already been shown to them. Okay? And I know that's hard to hear, but if that happened to you, I'm really sorry. And please speak up and please talk to someone because you deserve to get some support for this. And, um, And so really, I think trauma therapy, trauma work is super important. Um. As a clinician, I would like if you came into my office and this was your child that was telling you this, we'd have to report it. And then I'd also want the child who was doing the abuse to for their, you know, I'd file a report and say that I was suspecting that they were being abused as well. And I'd want them to look into that, too. Anyway, so that's kind of how that works. And I hope that that is clear enough There, I there's a lot to unpack here, but I just want to I, I think I'm doing it, you know, give, doing it justice. But you let me know if not. There was a comment on the end of this where someone said, that's a great question. I'm also curious if it's still considered sexual abuse if the two children are the same gender. Do little girls abuse other girls? Do boys abuse other boys? Yes, they do. And yes, it's still abuse. I know a lot of the time parents say that inappropriate touching between kids is simply playing doctor. Again, that's more curiosity-based, but sexualized things, it's different. But I wonder if sometimes there there really is sexual abuse going on. Yes, I think sometimes there really is. Um Obviously, talk to your children, uh, help them feel safe telling you about things if they're uncomfortable, if something weird has happened. I'd rather a child overshare with a parent um, and say, you know, 
I don't know, like mommy, mommy, uh, you know, when aunt changed my, my diaper, she, she rubbed on my, my rear end and I didn't like it or something. I'd rather they say that and they say, oh, you know, talk to the aunt and the aunt says, oh, I was just putting on some, you know, uh, diaper cream. And, and then you say to the child, remember, I do that too. Do you know, sometimes it's just different when it's not you, I didn't like it or something, right? We want them to be able to tell us those things so that we can assess and we can check things out. I'd rather we over communicate about this, help children feel free to tell us when things are making them uncomfortable. Um, as soon as they can speak, that's the thing is like, it's hard when children can't speak, but as soon as they can, they should be able to tell us. And it doesn't matter the gender of the child. Um, it's abuse is abuse. Okay. And yeah, I hope that that answers that. Um, again, happy to keep talking about it. I'll try to find that video of mine about it. Um, but yeah, get some support. It's more, it's so, it, it's like more common than you know. I've had multiple patients over the years who've had, you know, abuse by a sibling cousin, thing like that. And they were, the, it turns out that the sibling cousin, whomever was being abused as well. So it's important that we speak up and we talk about it and everybody gets help. Okay, and the people who need to go to prison, go to prison. Am I right? Okay. Question number three says, hey, Katie, do you always, quote unquote, always have to try to get better? What if I don't want to get better? I know I'm suffering, but it's not consistent. On some days, I'm all fine. I'm not feeling my worst. My therapist says I'm going through what is called complex trauma, but I've gotten so used to it now. I've gotten so used to feeling numb and like nothing matters. I don't see a point in anything. I don't know if I want to get better and I'm confused. So what do I do? And P.S. I hope this makes some sense. It totally makes sense. Okay. And there are a lot of comments. What do we have? One, two. Oh, it just looks like two comments after this. Okay. So you don't always have to want to get better. In fact, I would even argue that we don't even really have to want to get better that much. We just have to hate where we're at. Do you know what I mean? Because working on yourselves is fucking hard. No one, I don't want anybody out there to think that therapy is easy work. It is helpful work and it is totally worth it. But doing it is hard and uncomfortable. And it's going to push you to think and act in ways that you normally don't think and act. And it's difficult. Like my knee-jerk reaction to things is usually me trying to people please. But I know that leads me down a road of self-destruction and anxiety. So when I want to do something to make someone else's life better at my to like my own cost, I have to pause because my, I can hear my therapist's voice saying, you're doing it again. I pause and I say, actually, I'd love to, but I just can't, you know, I have to put in that boundary. I have to say no sometimes. And does that mean that I, in the moment, I'm like, I just want to be better. Oh, I feel so motivated to feel better. No, I just know how shitty it gets when I don't put in that effort. And so know that if you go through these peaks and wanes of feeling motivated and unmotivated, that's just life. Cut yourself some slack. You're doing the best you can. Complex trauma is really difficult to manage. Not to mention like, I mean, think of all the pieces of it, right? There can be repressed memory and we're trying to, you know, go into our mental, uh, I call it like a mental castle, right? And like find all the hidden bits and try to put it together. And we're dealing with potentially body memories, hypervigilance, um, our amygdala is probably enlarged. So we get into fight, flight, freeze or dissociate really quickly. We're managing all of that. So give yourself a little bit of extra compassion and understanding that you don't always have to want to get better. But just remember why we sought help in the first place. That's what's helped me over the years is like, I remember why I reached out is because I didn't like how I felt. And so maybe, you know, reminding yourself, hey, it is shitty. And I, I sometimes want to be numb 
and act like nothing matters. But I know that doesn't lead me anywhere I like, but it's also, it's a coping skill. Let your therapist know, hey, sometimes I just want to check out. I get so overwhelmed. It's exhausting. Sometimes I check out, you know, and I tell my patients that's okay sometimes, but I need you to come back, right? We have to work on some grounding techniques. I need to work on some processing skills. And I also know that this could happen, right? You could start to feel like you just need to pull away. Sometimes it's okay to do that, right? It's a coping skill in and of itself. As long as it's not harming us, it's okay, but we're going to have to come back. Okay. Um, Again, just let your therapist know about this, like not seeing a point in anything, because sometimes when we feel like nothing matters and we we allow our thoughts to really spiral into that, we don't uh, distract, we don't use a, a different type of coping skill processing or distraction based. Um, I have a whole video about that, you know, Katie Morton, 25 coping skills. But if we don't allow ourselves to try something else or distract or pull us out or process through what we're feeling, that nothing matters feeling can turn into suicidal thoughts. So I just want to, you know, make sure you're aware of that and know that it does get better. We just have to give ourselves some support, help us feel a little bit better. So I hope that that helps. And I hope that that makes sense. Your question completely made sense. Um, and it's it's very normal. And also the suffering, not being consistent, feeling like, oh, I have this shitty week and then I'm okay for a bit and then shitty. That's just how things are. And honestly, there are many reasons that can happen. Number one can be that like, I'm numbed out, right? We can check out and we're like, I've been doing fine. Can't tell you how many patients will come in. They're like, actually, I had a pretty good week. And I'm like, well, tell me about some of the things that happened. And they have a horribly difficult time recalling any details. And I'm like, let's do some grounding techniques. Have you been dissociating? And they'll be like, oh, shit, I didn't even realize, right? We don't even rec- recognize we've completely checked out. And so, sorry, I've got, I've got pod nose. My nose itches because I'm too close to the microphone and the vibrations. Okay. Anyways, um, so that's one of the reasons that it can happen, this up and down. Also, it's just our resilient, our ability to be resilient, right? Sometimes we can feel like we're okay because we were able to do some self-care and maybe we had a good session with our therapist or we did some homework that was helpful, right? And so some of the shitty stuff we're able to manage and keep ourselves feeling good. And then we just, you know, maybe we don't sleep very well or we have something really, we have a fight with a friend or a breakup or something stressful and then, you know, we can fall back in. And, and so that's just kind of life. We just have these ups and downs. Now, one of the comments after this question was, also, how to stop sabotaging my progress because I don't actually want to feel okay because feeling okay means my therapist will leave. Hello, attachment. Um, my therapist is the first person that I've ever felt safe with. I feel like I'm stuck in this eternal loop of needing and then wanting to be miserable. Talk to your therapist about it. It's very, very common. Also, look up my videos about attachment to your therapist. Um, your therapist is not going to leave you just because you're doing well. A therapist would leave, and I actually have a video. I was trying to think of the name. That's why I paused there for a second. I think the name is Why I Can't See You Anymore. And I think you can look it up on YouTube. And I talk about the reasons that therapy can end. Now, yes, if you're doing really well for a long period of time, your therapist will start to talk about titrating your sessions down, meaning going from like, let's say you're going twice a week to once a week, or if you're going once a week to like every other week, we check in. I even have a new video a month ago, maybe where it was like a, a skit of me acting out the ways that therapy can end, like healthful ways that therapy can end. That could be beneficial too, but it, but that shows you why it will end. Um, and not to mention that the tricky thing is, is if we pretend or prefer to stay kind of feeling shitty and wanting to be miserable, 
we can, I had a patient do this, this is years ago, but I had a patient do this, didn't want me to leave, uh, deteriorated so much so that I referred her out to a treatment center. Cause I was like, you're, you're too high needs for my outpatient care. And she was devastated. And I was like, I'm here for you, like for check-ins and when you get out, but you know, and then we had to have a big talk about that, that like, you know, by you sabotaging your progress in therapy, you're actually the only one that's being hurt. And as long as you're honest and open with me, I'm not going anywhere, you know? And, and so part of it is just having that conversation and talking about it and then doing, again, the attachment, trauma, emotional neglect work, whatever that comes from in our life, we're going to have to start working on it and understanding boundaries and communicating that with our therapist because it's very normal to feel overly attached to your therapist. But that doesn't mean that we just don't talk about it. It means we talk about it, we find ways to navigate it, which will help us in future relationships so that we don't become overly attached to other people and then end up hurt, right? We wanna be able to have healthy, happy boundaries um, and understandings within relationships. Now, the next comment was, what about when the opposite of this feeling is persistent? I feel like I constantly wanna get better to the point where I never take a break from psychoeducation and self-improvement unless I'm distracted by another task. I know a lot of you out there feel this way too. Any free time I have, I feel like I need to be working on myself and learning new information about trauma in hopes that I can apply it, uh, that I can apply it to myself and get better. I feel guilty if I don't constantly work on myself and I'm exhausted from constantly trying to find new information. I even feel guilty typing this comment because I know and feel that it's my responsibility to manage my symptoms and get better. I know there has to be a line there somewhere, but I don't know where it is or how to find it. Any advice, Katie? Yes, tons of it. Too much of anything is bad. Too little, you know, it's like we're going in extremes, right? We're doing all or nothing. I would encourage us, like all of you out there, I'd encourage you to consider your work in therapy like school homework. Do we do school homework? I mean, maybe kids do now, but back when I was a kid, like you do homework for a couple hours a night and you're done. That's even actually a little much. I have my patients work on their therapy homework for, you know, like half hour to an hour a night is more than sufficient. I don't really want you only thinking and doing things that are therapy related because here's the problem with that is that if we're only doing psychoeducation and homework and therapy, where is the time for us to practice those new things? Sorry, you guys, there are like sirens are going. I don't know what's happening, but I hope everybody's okay. Um, but I want you to have time to practice using those things in real life. And if we're only doing homework, right? It'd be like, I guess the best example would be like, let's say I want to become a nurse. If all I do is just read about being a nurse, learn about what it's going to be like uh, being a nurse. I read all the books. I talk to other nurses. If I only do that and I spend all my time doing that, when do I actually get to practice being a nurse so that I can do the things I need to do? When does that happen? We don't leave time for it. And therapy is no different. We do need to, and I'm so glad that you're motivated, but there comes a point where we can overdo it so that we're not leaving any space for us to try the new things out, come back to our therapist, let them know, hey, this worked or didn't, right? And then we go back out and we try things again. And so it's it's a little bit less of the like research, reading, processing all the time and more of the like practicing, like, how do I communicate boundaries? How do I say no more when I need to? How do I maybe communicate my, about my feelings or even acknowledge what my feelings are more often? How do I do that? How do I increase my self-care? What are the things that I'm not managing of my basic needs that need to be managed, right? How do I finally make that doctor's appointment that's been stressing me out? There's so many other things that we need to do, these actions we need to take 
And yeah, I feel like if we're only doing that, then we don't get to ever just be ourselves and learn what that's like in with our new tools. We don't get to actually use those new tools. Um, it's like buying a, a toy and keeping it in the box, right? You've done all this work to get that thing, to get all this information, and you're not even going to take it out to play with it. You don't get to try it out. Um, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Okay. So the balance in the middle is like, you know, spending some time I don't even say every day, but maybe I'm a little too lax with my patients. But I, I think if we can set aside even 10 to 20 minutes a day, it's amazing. 10 gold stars. If you can do that three to four times a week, amazing also. So, you know, it's finding that balance for you so that you don't feel like that's all you, that you're about. Because it's just one part of us, right? Our work in therapy can feel so overwhelming, but it's just one part of us. There's so many other things that we're good at, we like to do, ways we like to spend our time, people we want to see. We got to make time for that. Okay, let's move on to question number four. And it says, how do I stop being so lazy? So much judgment already. I'm not necessarily happy with my life because I'm too lazy to change it. But mood wise, I'm pretty happy most of the time. So it's not depression or anything like that. I think about the things that I want to do. And I know that I need to do be- uh, what I need to do to better myself and my life. I just don't do it. No job and no major responsibilities. I'm a 31-year-old loser who doesn't seem to want to change, which brings me to a bonus question. Why do I want to be this way? I don't think you really want to be this way. And depression, so you said it's not depression or anything. And I I hear you when you say mood-wise, like you feel pretty happy. Depression isn't just mood. For some people it is, and that is a part of depression. However, not feeling motivated, not being happy with your life, and shit-talking yourself all the time because you don't really feel better about yourself. I'd assume you don't feel very good about yourself at all. I suspect that that, there may be depression there. Or also, and not, I know Sean, back in the day when quarantine first started, he called it, uh, was it quarantine syndrome or post-quarantine syndrome? I think that a lot of us are experiencing some definite depression as a response or in reaction to COVID and what's happened to our lives, right? I call it the forgotten year. Sean doesn't necessarily agree with me, but I always call last year just like the forgotten year, like it's gone. Like I don't even know what happened. I didn't do anything, you know, none of the things I wanted to do did I get to do. Um, and so, and I know that sounds really dramatic, but you know what I mean. Um, I think it could be depression. That's my hypothesis. When I read this, I was like, oh, it's interesting because you don't think it's depression, but I, I don't agree. I think that there are definite components like, uh, I can't tell you how many of my depressed patients say they're lazy. That is like so common. To me, that's like red flag number one. Red flag number two, I'm not necessarily happy with my life. Okay, mood-wise, you're okay. Okay, so we don't have depressed mood, but that's only one symptom. I'd be curious about, excuse me. I'd be curious about your sleep and wake cycles. Like how well are you doing with that? How's your appetite? I'd be curious about that. Um, I'm also curious about your concentration, your ability to concentrate and focus. Are you irritable? You know, what's happening there? Um, And I might even just be like feeling aimless, like no job and no major responsibilities. If we don't have anything to do, it's funny. There's like this, um, I forget who it is that came up with this, but, but we all know it to be true. If you just hear me out, you'll understand. But we can, um, there's a certain amount of, of what's being asked of us that helps us get more productive. Does that make sense? So it's like a certain level of business keeps us, it it like increases our productivity, right? So 
you're asking more of me, oh, I'll do more, right? So then there's this peak where it's just the right amount that's being asked of us and we're able to meet it. And then we kind of go down, right? Even if they ask more, we're not able to accomplish more because we're not robots. And so there is like this sweet spot of we need tasks and we need things to do to keep us going. If you don't have a job and you're not feeling like giving you responsibilities, we don't have any of that. So therefore, we're not motivated to, to do anything. And we've all been there where at first we think it's really nice to take a break. And we're like, yeah, it's nice. I don't have to do anything. And then after a while of not doing anything, you're like, I don't even want to like do my laundry because like that seems like a big deal. And like, I'd rather just do nothing. We kind of succumb to that. And so I think if you had a little, if you started creating some to-do list for yourself every day, some some responsibilities, some things that you would like to accomplish or take care of or do, then I think you'd start to feel a little bit more motivated. But then we'd also find out, you know, what what is the trigger? I'm just being curious with you here about it. But I am very suspicious of the depression component. And I think that it, that might have something to do with it. Um, so yeah, talk to someone if you can. But also doing having a few things on your list every day. And some people who are holding you accountable couldn't help or couldn't hurt either. It will help. Sorry, that was a total miss uh misspeak there okay and i don't believe you want to be this way for your bonus question i don't think you want to be this way i think it's it's hard to get us out of a rut sometimes and it's like i've talked about this in the past how like uh i was just talking to someone on a patreon hangout earlier today and i really like this phrase it was like whatever fires wires and they're talking in relation to your brain when we when a neuron you know they've like it, it fires between the synapse and these connections are made and built in our brain and I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it, but that's roughly what happens, okay? I've described it like as a balloon filled with sand and you roll a marble from one neuron to the next and it creates this little rut, right? So whatever fires across wires, meaning it's creating this rut, this connection, and it's really hard but possible to get that marble out of that already created rut and to create a new one. And it's gonna wanna fall back in there. We're gonna, gonna wanna not do anything and and you know fall into this low-grade depression or um, you know, feeling really lazy and unproductive, but then we can, oh, we, we use our tools, we think a different way, and we pull it back over to that other new rut that's maybe just not as deep. But then as we push into that new rut and it gets deeper, it fills up that old rut. Does that make sense? I hope that that helps. Okay. There was a comment on this that said, so is executive dysfunction also a sign of depression? Yes. And I want to pull up because um, I know that not everybody um, knows what executive dysfunction means. And I want to make sure that we all are on the same page. So there are executive function is is like, it's not necessarily a certain part of our brain, but a lot of it's in our prefrontal cortex, not to get too nerdy about it. But it, uh, it's a, a whole set of skills. So executive functioning is a set of like mental skills that we're able to accomplish. These can be things like our working memory, like my ability to remember what question I'm even answering right now, right? It could be uh, self-control, my ability to manage like impulses and uh, automatic thoughts and things like that. Um, also flexible thinking, like, oh, I have to get around this, I'm going to do this. And oh, but that road's blocked. Like, let's, I know it sounds silly to talk about this way, but oh, that way is not going to work for me to get to work that way. I'll just hang a left and I'll find my way this way, right? We don't, we're not stuck in one way of doing things. We're able to navigate life and the changes in life. And so if we struggle with executive functioning, we make it hard to focus. Sounds a lot like depression, right? We can um, struggle to follow directions, handle emotions. There are a ton of different things. And it can also be really hard for us to, to pay attention to people or to understand a different point of view 
of organizing, planning, prioritizing. Like I'd read this article, this was years ago, about executive dysfunction. I think I did a video on it. But it, the example that they gave was a woman trying to plan a vacation. And they talked about the steps that like, you know, uh, someone with with good executive functioning and how it would work for them. And then they explained what it would be like for someone, you know, with with a struggle with their executive functioning, like poor executive functioning. And it was so helpful for me to visualize it that way because you could see the difficulty in that organizing, planning, flexible thinking part. And so, so anyways, I just want you to all know what that is. And so executive dysfunction. So is executive dysfunction also a sign of depression? It's something that I would want to rule out. So for those of you who don't know, like when when you're a mental health professional or even a health professional, we use kind of these diagnostic structures and one of them is like a potential a potential for dual diagnosis or you have to rule things out. Meaning are these things happening together? Like does someone have PTSD and uh I don't know anxiety or panic disorder or is it all represented by ptsd and in this case is it you know executive dysfunction or is it depression or is it both right and i would want to rule that out depending on the other symptoms of depression that are very important like do we have um you know anhedonia meaning like a lack of interest in things that we used to like no interest or pleasure in the things we used to like is that happening okay do we have a depressed mood is there, are there changes to our sleep appetite? Are we irritable? Can we focus? Like, I know some of those things overlap with executive dysfunction, but we'd have to look at them both and kind of rule them out slowly but surely. Because this person says, I'm dealing with complex grief and I just don't have any desire or energy to do the things that I want to do. That sounds, you know, that's grief. I've always been pretty anal about keeping a clean house and I haven't had the desire for a while now to do any cleaning, even though I don't like what I'm seeing. How do I get out of this headspace if this is, is if this is executive dysfunction or depression I'm experiencing? It sounds like it's grief. Now, I know that that doesn't give you an answer because you're like, well, I already know that I'm dealing with that. Grief is horribly hard and it can wipe us out and make simple tasks seem just intensely difficult. Like I've talked about this before, but my therapist, when my dad died, told me that it was like someone threw a 70 pound backpack on me and then told me to go run a marathon. You know, and she was like, you run marathons, Katie in life. And I was like, what? And she's like, we have a job. You're in college. Like you do a lot. You keep yourself busy. You run marathons. And she's like, but somebody just threw a 70 pound backpack on you. I was like, go run that marathon. And she's like, and you're trying, but you can't because that is a huge weight on you. And I just want the person who asked this question to know that's a huge weight on you and you can't run your marathon. So you can't keep your house clean because you're too fucking tired because you're dealing with grief. And grief is like this heavy, it's this heavy blanket and like makes it hard. It's like somebody throws a big heavy blanket over you and you can't even see out of it. And it like, it, it the guilt that can come along because it's complex grief you're talking about, the guilt can come along with it. And then there's even some like shame maybe associated with it. And then we can feel like we can't concentrate and focus and like, I don't have any energy and like I get up and I get enough sleep, but then I'm tired again. And like, I don't even want to eat well. And, you know, we just start like deteriorating, which is why you're getting support. But I just want you to know that I believe all of that is accounted for with your complex grief. Um, could it be labeled as depression? Sure. If someone wanted to do that, but I still would lean back into the grief, but I know the DSM as shitty as it is in certain situations is one of its shittiest is that it gives us a limit for bereavement for grief. So whatever. Um, but again, it doesn't give enough time, I don't think, for those of us with complex grief. So I would say that that is what it is. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And that question is, hi, Katie. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. 
Has a client ever shown you a song or a piece of music as representation of how they are feeling or what they are going through? Or would you not find that appropriate? I really struggle to talk about my feelings. I've been in therapy for six months and I haven't been able to fully tell my therapist what is going on. It is getting a bit easier to open up as each session passes, but I've recently discovered a song that obviously doesn't explain everything, but it feels like I could have written it as it rings so, so true for me and describes exactly how I feel. Would it be strange for me to bring this up in therapy or tell my therapist about it for her to listen to it? Has this ever happened to you before? And if so, how did you react? Um, Did it help you understand the client's perspective? I'm not sure if this makes sense, but I hope that it does. I hope you're well. Thank you for all that you do. Totally makes sense. And yes, I've had many clients do this. Okay, so I have a couple of examples. First, I ran this group, talked about it in the past um, at the Eden Disorder Treatment Center called Body and Soul Group. Now, the Body and Soul Group, um, we did a lot of inner child work, spoilers, but we didn't call it that. Um, And we did a lot of musical and art therapy and all sorts of stuff like that. So one of the things that I did is I had everybody give me a song this is way back. You have to remember this, like 2007, maybe 2008. Um, everybody gave, I told them to send me a song and I made CDs. This is back in the day when we had CDs. I know many of you might not know what that's like, but we used to make mixed CDs in the way that uh, people, you know, 10 years older than me would make mixtapes and cassettes. And pe- a lot of people like kids now probably don't even know what cassettes are. But anyway, I made, you know, compilation CDs for people based on the songs that they said fit their eating disorder and the struggles they were having. I actually still have a copy of that CD. It was so good. Anyway, each person in group, as the CD played, we got to listen to the song fully, and then they got to explain what it meant to them and why it was so powerful. And so, um, yes, I love music. I think any way we can help express what we're feeling through art, through music, through dance. I've even had a patient actually um, dance, uh, show some she wanted it was it was again at the treatment center um but as part of our group therapy we could do different things movement with body again it was like that body and soul group and some people preferred to do the art or art on their body like painting but one woman really liked to dance she was a ballerina for many years and so she danced did some like modern dance to express how it felt and i thought that was really cool too so i don't have any problem with it. I actually welcome it. And I love it. I think that we need to get more creative with the ways that we allow our clients to share their stories, their feelings, their experiences, because not everyone can easily work through the medium of, you know, voice and putting words to how we feel. Not everybody has that ability and can do it in a way that feels authentic. And if you can do that through music, you can do it through art, you can do it through dance, you can do it through whatever, as long as it's um, healthy and helpful, I'm all for it. And so, yes, I've had many experiences. I love it. I would, I can't encourage you enough to do it because I think it will open the, the door for such deeper and more helpful conversations in therapy. So go for it. You got this. I think it's going to be really, really helpful. Highly recommend it. Okay. Question number six. Hi, Katie. My therapist told me that she has a, quote, desire to protect my heart and that she loves me. Hmm. Is this counter-transference? Sounds a little funny. I'm in trauma therapy working through sexual, physical, and emotional abuse that I sustained for over a decade as a child slash adolescent. And one of my biggest fears is that I am unlovable. Her words were a great source of comfort for me, but I'm wondering if I should bring them back up with her because I can't stop thinking about them and replaying them in my head. Yes, please bring them up with her. Now, 
The desire to protect your heart. I could understand that, I guess. it's not That's not language that I would use. It sounds a little too woo-woo-y for me, but that's just me, right? And different strokes for different folks. Your therapist might think that that was, um, she was probably trying to offer you some compassion and understanding while at the same time showing you the, the care that she has for you. Now, I don't think she should have told you that she loves you because that is a little bit of like a overstep. It's a boundary overstep. And I think both of those things just reek of, of lack of boundaries because it's not her job to protect you. It's her job to help you see the ways that you can protect yourself. And I think that that's just a very different perspective and it's an important difference. And I really think that it's a, it's a dangerous place to be in when as a therapist, I'm taking ownership over you you and protecting you and then telling you that I love you because the ter- to say that you care for someone is one thing. And I've told many of my patients over the years, like, I, of course I care for you because they'll ask like, do you even care? You know, some people are like unraveling and they're upset and we're having emotion dysregulation issues. And I'll say, of course I care, but that's why we're, I'm trying, you, trying to get you to use your tools and your skills. You've got this. I know you do, you know, and we can be tantruming, right? And a, a therapist needs to hold the boundary and push us to try to use the things we know that help us feel better. And I'm just bringing that up as an example because the problem with what your therapist is saying here is there's no... Uh, ownership on that she's putting onto you for your own life and your own betterment, which is what therapy is about. I'm helping you fill up your toolbox with all the tools that you're going to need, teaching you how to use them so that you can go out into the world and do it and use those things and be good with it, right? It's almost like the old adage, like you can, uh, you know, what is it? Give a guy a fish and feed him for one day or teach him how to fish and feed him for a lifetime. Therapy is about teaching people how to fish. I'm not just there to feed you for the day. I'm, I'm there to teach you so you can take up ownership and do it on your own. Sorry, I have a eyelash in my eye. So many problems today. Okay. And so I would tell, I would talk to your therapist about it. I would tell her that it was just made, made you a little uncomfortable if you can. Um, you know, you can even say like it was a great source of comfort for me, but I feel like in a way it was a little too much because I should be the one to protect my heart and I need to learn how to, how to love myself you know, that would be my pushback because that is a little, I don't like it. And I think it's a, it's a dangerous overstep that happened. So it's good on you for having your little spidey senses be like, whoa, wait, that's not right. You got this. I know you do. You're so, so smart. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. It says, just curious, do patients ever bring in pictures of themselves as a child or of their family? Yes, they do. Is that ever encouraged or discouraged? And for what reason? Sometimes I've wanted to bring pictures in because I feel like photos bring connection and can explain some things, but I don't know if that's weird or crossing a boundary somehow. Thank you for sharing all that you do. Of course. Now, I have had patients bring in photos for a lot of different reasons. Um, Inner child work, it's sometimes helpful to have a photo of child like us. So some patients want to do that and it helps them kind of get into that mindset and like see that version of themselves. For other people, it's super triggering. They're like, and I dissociated, you know, and then we're like, well, that's not going to work. But that can be helpful. It can also some people want me to see their family. Like one of my uh, patients, I don't often see teenagers, but I saw this teenager for a while. And I want to say I started seeing her when she's like 16 or something. But she wanted me to see all her friends and her family, people she talked about. She wanted me to be able to put faces to names. So she brought in like this photo book and she wanted me to see it. And we went through page by page and she explained each person and and stuff. And so she liked then going moving forward when we'd have conversations. And let's say she was talking about her friend. I'm talking about, you know, my like my friend Rocio. If I said Rocio, 
you know, if she said that to me, I'd be like, oh yeah, she has like short brown hair and she's like five foot tall. You know, she liked that I knew that and that I had visualized them and had seen them. And so of course you can totally bring that in. Um, So yeah, there's a ton of different reasons and I think it's completely fine. And if it's something that you would like to do and there's a reason behind it, express that to your therapist. I'm sure they'll have no no problem with it. Again, the only reason that I wouldn't have someone bring it in would be if it was so triggering, they were dissociating. Um, and that doesn't mean that we wouldn't come back to it and try it at another time, but it might just be too much at the moment. I've even held on to photos for a while to come back to them later. So that could be, you know, what they do too, but it's not crossing a boundary. It's completely fine and normal. And yeah, I mean, if I've had that many patients try to bring them in and we've used it in certain ways, I'm sure your therapist has as well. So just bring it up. It's going to be fine. And I'm, I'm glad you thought about it. Again, going back to what I was talking about earlier about like music and dance and, and art and other ways to, to express or show what's happening or what we're thinking or where we came from. Like all of that is really, really helpful. And I think utilizing any of those resources to get across a message to your therapist, I'm all for it. 10 out of 10. Okay. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, how can we open up more in therapy when the therapist isn't sharing much about herself? I know it's weird. In other relationships, we often observe how the others behave and respond accordingly to prevent over or under sharing or to avoid rejection, conflict, etc. Oh, that's interesting. We'll get into that. Yet in therapy, the therapist seldom talks about herself, rarely shows emotions other than accepting and validating mind. Good therapist. I know this is my time yet. I feel like I can't share much because the therapist doesn't. Hmm. How do we deepen the therapeutic relationship? Can I ask more about the therapist? Nope. Will I make her uncomfortable and humiliate myself? No. Thank for all your podcasts. They've been such a great help. Okay. And I have, there's a couple, there are two questions in the comments below this, but let's get into this because I, man, this question was so good. And I'm going to, you're probably not going to like my answer, but I found it very interesting. I was very interested in the fact that in other relationships, you observe how others behave and respond accordingly so that you don't under or overshare. It, it sounds to me um, either there's a couple things potentially going on. Number one, you could be masking and you could you know, be on the spectrum, have autism spectrum disorder. I've heard from a lot of you that you'll do this where we like gauge how other people are acting and doing. And that's how we learn how to interact, which masks have made things super difficult for us. And I'm so sorry that if you're going through that. So I want to address that and acknowledge that that could be a reason for this. But in the case of this person, I am suspicious of some very intense people pleasing. And trust me when I tell you, it takes one to know one. And I've done this myself. And I'm going to be honest with you, you cannot walk on eggshells, act in a certain way to elicit a particular response. You think you can. I've thought I could. If I'm just nice enough, if I just work hard enough, God damn it, things will turn out for me and they will act in just the way I want. Bullshit. We are not in control of other people. There is no amount of things that I can do to ensure that someone is going to act in a particular way. I know our brain tells us that that's going to happen. It's not. Okay. So bring this up with your therapist. That is what I, I cannot encourage you enough. Even read this question if you struggle to put it together for therapy. Say, I asked this question to this therapist on the internet and she told me to tell it to you. So here, I'm just gonna read it to you. Read this question to her because 
that's what we need to work on is this people pleasing, walking on eggshells, urge to thinking we can control other people's emotional responses. My hypothesis would be that either you had some unhealthy relationships in your past, whether it's with parents, uh, you know, friends, romantic partners, whatever, that have led you to wanting to please them so that you don't cause more issues for yourself and others. And you honestly believe that if you do certain things, then then bad things won't happen or whatever. And if you aren't able to people please, you probably also double book yourself and feel super stressed if you don't call someone back right away or text them right away or do, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of that going on. Um, And that anxiety that builds is uncomfortable. And I get that. But that's the stuff that we need to work on in therapy. That's the that's what we got to get into. It's not about you knowing anything about your therapist. It's the fact that your people pleasing tactics don't have any place in therapy because you cannot please your therapist like that. That's just not what therapy is about. Therapy is about me challenging you. You tell me what works and doesn't work. And we work together toward your goals has nothing to do with me. It's all about you and how I can best assist For for people pleasers super fucking uncomfortable. One of the first things I've told you this story many times, one of the first things my therapist had me do back when I was like in high school was like, turn off my cell phone and be unreachable and do whatever I wanted, not ask anyone else for their feedback, have an entire day to myself to do what I want. Did I accomplish that? Um, I turned off my phone, but I turned it back on maybe like two or three times throughout the day to just to check, just to check. Didn't want to leave anybody hanging, right? You guys, you feel me. But anyway, it was a work in progress. And I'm telling you, if I can do it, you can do it. And we can get to a place where when people ask us to do something we don't want to do, we say no. And when people want to be upset, we don't take it personally. And we don't automatically think we've done something wrong. I'm telling you, you can get there. So please bring that up with your therapist. Now, one of the comments said, on the flip side, is it wrong to have a therapist that discloses a lot about their life and personal experiences, even though it makes me feel more uncomfortable to be open or to open up and express how I feel and what I'm experiencing? Yes, it's wrong. I would uh, mention it to your therapist and consider finding someone else. That's a therapist who needs to be in their own therapy and isn't. So their own shit is coming into your session, which is incredibly unprofessional and unethical and just not good. The only reasons therapists share things, because I don't want anybody to think that a therapist never shares things. Therapists share things. We pick and choose and we, it, we t- it's, we t- it's with great caution that we share things. And the only reason I would share something personal would to help a patient feel or not even just feel, but like know that I get it. Like the example that I've usually given when I talk about this is like the fact that my dad died when I was 24. So if someone was going through a death in the family or death of a parent, even like even closer, like death of a father, right? The exact same scenario. A lot of times patients will tell me like, you don't know, you don't self injure, you don't have an eating disorder, you weren't traumatized. You know, people will do that. Rightfully so, right? How do you know? And therapists don't have to know to be able to help you, by the way. But there are times when patients are going through grief that I will share a little bit. I'll say, you know, I lost my father when I was about your age, and and I I just want you to know that I I know what it's like, and I'm here for you, and we'll get through this. You know, so it's kind of a it's to it's the empathy component, letting them know that I I actually was there too, in my own version. Not saying my version's your version, which I always try to explicitly communicate, but I don't share much about it other than that. I wouldn't get into how I felt or what it was really like for me because this is not my therapy. If I want to talk about my own shit, I pay my own therapist for that. She's great. It's very important. Keeps those boundaries up. Helps me be a better therapist. 
So that's that. And then the other comment says, hi, Katie, what does it mean to go to, um, to go deeper? And how do you do this without your defense mechanisms getting in the way? In therapy, I feel like I'm under a microscope. Microscope. I start by describing in very general terms, but I'm asked to be more specific. I know we do that. And so I begin to shift into being too specific and quite literal while trying to give the answer I think my therapist wants to hear. Thank you, love from Australia. That last sentence, man, it's the same as the first uh, question. You try to give the answer your therapist wants to hear. People pleasing, people pleasing, people pleasing. We're all so people pleasing. And I'm telling you, I know personally, it's fucking exhausting. So what I said back at the beginning is bring this up. Tell your therapist about this. Talk about how, you know, you feel yourself, you know, being so specific because you feel like you're under a microscope. And then you want to tell them, you want to make sure you're giving them the right answer. And your urge to please them is exhausting. Talk about that. Let's not try to fix this like random symptom that's cropped up. It's more about we're getting closer to the root with this where it's like, hey, I think it's more about people pleasing. And then I guarantee once we've recognized that we can track that back to where it's coming from, which will give us a better a better idea of where, you know, all this other stuff is is coming from and why we're feeling the way that we're feeling. Okay, hope that helps. Moving on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie. I hold a lot of blame and anger toward my mother. She was emotionally absent throughout my life and made me feel like I was a burden when I was diagnosed with depression in high school. Ooh. I feel like I was not helpfully supported by my mom and other people in my life at that time. The solutions they came up with to help me cause more damage, and I see the effects that it has on me now. Sometimes I want to tell my mom about all the situations where she made me feel really bad for feeling the way that I did, but there's a chance that I could hurt her feelings if I tell her because I wouldn't be able to hold back any of my feelings. Do you think that this would be effective? Or is there a better way to go about this and to rid myself of some of the anger and blame before I have a conversation with her? Thank you for all your informative videos. You're the best. Of course. Okay. I love this question. Now, what you're describing, I don't know. I'm curious about your mom. I'm like, is she narcissistic? What's going on? Um, And I don't know. Could be a number of things. She could be narcissistic. She could have some tendencies in that way. She could, you know... Um, have her own ish and that therefore was like neglectful. So you were like, because it sounds like you were emotionally neglected, which is abuse, by the way. Um, and then the the trauma on top of like being di- diagnosed with depression and then having them hurt you. So I'm so sorry you had to go through that. The This is what my advice is about this, is I want you to consider the benefits and the costs of of telling your mom. Because I do think there is something to not holding back your feelings because again then what are we doing then we can't be emotionally like we can't even express emotionally how we're feeling to her so is that wouldn't be beneficial to you if you couldn't fully express yourself okay so consider the pros and cons of communicating this to her because the thing that i always tell my patients is that if you communicate it going back to that people pleasing conversation we were just having you can't with 100% certainty know how they're going to respond. We don't know, right? Sometimes they might respond well. Sometimes they might not respond well. Sometimes we're going to think they're going to respond one way and they're going to respond the other. We don't have any control over that. And also, this isn't about them. This is about you. And so we need to take some time to, to think, really think about what the benefits are for you and what is best for you. Now, I know as a as a past people pleaser, it is hard to untangle myself from someone else and their feelings, but I give no fucks about how your mom feels. I only care about you. And I want you to consider what would be best. 
Do you need to say some things to her face? If the answer is yes, then let's get specific. What are those things? What are the things that you really want her to hear? Also know she may not hear them. She may not respond. She may lash out. She may do all sorts of things. We don't know. But I want you to think about what you and keep it focused on you because your brain's going to want to go, well, I just need her to, uh-uh, uh-uh, I don't, you can't go there. You need her to apologize. We can't fucking make that happen. I'm so sorry. What do you need? I need to get it off my chest. Okay, there we go. We're getting started, right? I need to tell her just how painful it was because I just need her to, to hear me. Okay, well, we can't make sure she hears us, but you can get it off your chest. And if doing that, even if we, because with my patients, I'm always like, let's role play worst case scenario. Okay, your mom explodes. She lashes out. She says a bunch of nasty things to you. Do you still feel better having gotten that off your chest and out? Then let's do it, right? So we have to kind of weigh and measure. If no, if the answer is no, like, oh my God, I couldn't take the wounding from her. I can't be abused by her in that way anymore. Then you know, maybe we write some letters we don't send. We, we role play in therapy. There are other things we can do to get some of that anger out. But anger also, I'd be very curious about this and maybe have you do some art or music or whatever to try to express it. But what's the anger protecting you from? Because anger is like a secondary emotion. So it's usually hiding something else. And usually what anger helps us hide is something like hurt or disappointment or, you know, pain in some way. It's usually because that's a very, those are vulnerable. We can feel like those are vulnerable emotions. And so we throw out a, a like a spines, like a puffer fish. Oh, I was, for a second, I was like, and I just got my new puffer fish shirt, but no, this is my heart and hand shirt. This is also new merch that I have. And um, I wanted to get it first to tell you guys if I like it. And I have to be honest, I really like it. Um, but I have a puffer fish one too, that's in a mirror, super cute. But that's you puffer fishing is the anger. And so I'd be curious about that and want to dig into that too. Um, that's my advice about that. Okay, now the comment below this says, I relate to this so much. What kills me is that I know my mom is trying. Okay, I'll get into this. Sorry, I was like, I was going to go off on a, a tangent already. But since she's so out of touch with her own feelings and always kind of has been, right? She just can't support me emotionally. I've always longed for that special warm connection with uh, that other people have with their moms. I too would love to tell her all the ways in which she hurt me as a child and she still does, but feel I feel incredibly guilty because I know she doesn't mean to cause any harm. Just because someone doesn't mean to doesn't make the harm any less valid. Okay? I'm doing a lot of inner child work and therapy, and I feel so overwhelmed by all the emotional neglect that I suffered in my home. I'm not sure, though, if I'm able to continue this relationship without her understanding how much I'm hurting, but I also can't tell her what's wrong without making her feel bad. What do I do? What to do? Again, I don't give any fucks about how your mom feels. And I know it's so hard to untangle, especially when it's parents, but you've been harmed, okay? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, that's the problem with neglect. I can't tell you how many uh, viewers and patients alike struggle with the, the belief and the understanding that neglect is abuse, right? Because it was the lack of that left us feeling so much pain. And it's hard to grapple with that when we hear all the time about, you know, physical and sexual abuse. And we think those are the only ways that, or even emotional abuse in itself and, you know, shouting and stuff like that, or putting us down. Those are, they can be more tangible with, instead of like the, the missing of something, right? The, the removal of an important emotional support or something like that. So I know that it's hard, but just because she didn't mean to, doesn't mean that you weren't hurt. And that doesn't 
mean that you shouldn't have the ability or the voice to tell her that it hurt. And I think the main thing for you would probably be to role play with your therapist about how you would communicate this. Because part of me feels like, I know it's probably harsh for me to, for you to hear me say, I don't give any fucks about your mom, but it's just because you're giving all the fucks. And so I'm not going to give any because you got too many in there. You're given too many because you don't want to tell her what's wrong with you without making her feel bad. So again, we're hurting ourselves to better her life, even though she's already caused the hurt that we're hurt. You know, do you see the, it's like, um, in every one of those situations, we're the ones that are getting hurt and having to give up things. And that's not right. And so I would encourage you to role play with your therapist. The thing that I think you could probably say and practice saying is something to the effect of, you know, mom, I know you did your best. We're going to hug and roll. I know you did your best with me, but, and I know you're trying. I know you're still trying, but I've never really felt supported emotionally. And I know you probably didn't have support from your mom emotionally. And I would pause because the thing that's interesting about parents who aren't very emotionally intelligent or aren't very communicative about what's going on within them, when given an opportunity to reflect back, even just briefly, if she's able, she might not. Again, we can't control other people, but you can give her a moment to absorb what you've said and see if she's able to acknowledge, yeah, my mom wasn't very good either. She might get defensive right away, and that kind of can tell you where we're going with this. Because remember, whenever we're going to you know, broach the subject with someone and we're going to bring up some pain and, and some things that we need from them, we want to keep it short. Remember, it's three to five bullet points maximum. Each bullet point is just like a sentence or two. We are quick and to the point and we want to end with what we're asking of them. So your fifth bullet point sh- should be, what do I need from you? And what you probably need from your mom is, you know, um, I would just really like to be able to talk with you more about these things. Now, the hope with these kinds of conversations is that they're just the beginnings. It's just the early stages of conversations. It's not the only conversation. And I know that that's hard. And I know that that's frustrating because we want to get it all out and we don't want to do it again, right? Because it's super uncomfortable. And depending on how your mom responds or reacts to it, we might not do it again. But go in with the hope that it's the first of many. And then we can build out on that. So don't feel like you have to tell everything at once. But I would encourage you to maybe express some of this. Like, I know you didn't mean to cause any harm, but I was very harmed. And here's here's why. Here's how. You know, I never really felt uh, like I could speak to you about how I was feeling because you never told me how you were feeling. I didn't really get that kind of relationship dynamic with you. And I really miss that. My friends talk about how they talk to their moms and I'm jealous and then I'm sad and then I'm hurt because, you know, and I know I'm kind of getting off in a little long, but that's like, those are the chunks, right? We're talking, those are our bullet points. I'm, I wish we could have this connection. I was hurt because you did X, Y, Z or didn't do X, Y, Z. I'm jealous of my friends because they have that. And I would really like that with you. Would you be willing to work on that with me? I know it's uncomfortable. Um, but that's, that's, I think the best way to address it. And as much as we can, this is where therapy is super helpful. As much as you can, Take the emotion out of it for that conversation so that, again, it's the beginning of more conversations. And we we vent, 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 express, express, express in therapy, in journaling, writing letters we don't send, screaming into pillows. We find these outlets. If we're wanting to cultivate a relationship and grow it and make it better with a parent, we have to do that. If you want to burn it down and shut it down and cut it off, 
that's your choice. But again, the therapist to me is like, we can cultivate healthier, happier communications. Again, if you're if your mom is able, like I want to recognize some people's parents are very abusive and narcissistic and not helpful, but it doesn't sound like that is the case in this scenario. Um, more neglectful, out of touch with their own feelings, unable to meet you where you needed her to meet you emotionally and therefore was emotionally neglectful. And so I hope some of that helps get you thinking, get you started on it because it is difficult and it is trying And there is always this point, I feel like, in everyone's life where you suddenly recognize that your parent is just another person. They don't have all the answers. They don't know everything. They're just another person just like you. And I don't know when that occurred for me. It was probably, I don't know, for my dad, it was a little bit earlier than with my mom, but it probably my 20s somewhere in there. I mean, my dad passed when I was 24, but it wasn't, it was a few years before he passed when I was like, oh, you don't know how to fix everything and do everything, even though part of me still kind of thinks he does. You know, it's that funny thing about parents. But, you know, when you recognize, I think it's because I'm 37 and I was thinking back to like when my parents had me and how old they were. And I'm like, holy shit, man. Like my mom had me at what, 24 or something. I'm like, my fuck, I'd be like, like 13 years old, Jesus, I could have a 13. No, you know, and then I'm like, Oh, my God, they're just trying to figure it out too. Like, they don't know what's happening. And that gives me a little bit of compassion. But that doesn't get, let them off the hook. That doesn't mean that me acknowledging the fact that they're just another human trying their best, and they had no fucking clue either, doesn't mean that I don't have a right to feel hurt it doesn't negate. It's not like one thing negates another thing. These both of these things can exist together. They cannot know what the fuck they're doing and they're doing the best they can and they don't mean any harm. Yet, I was harmed. Okay? Um, I know that's difficult, but it's something, again, to like, you know, write down, talk about in therapy and process on your own so that we don't do this like, well, I don't want to say anything to her because I don't want to upset her. You are upset. You have every right to say things. It doesn't mean we have to be hateful with how we say it. It just means that our, again, our pain doesn't like exist or not exist in relation to whether or not they did it on purpose. Unintentional pain is still pain. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie, how do you know that you have actually experienced childhood trauma? Good question. I dissociated in my last therapy session when talking about the relationship with my sister who has always been quite the bully. Ooh, bullying is traumatizing. My therapist mentioned that what I experienced may have been traumatizing and may um, and it may explain why I dissociated in session. Although the relationship with my sister has been rough to the point where I no longer talk to her, I don't think I would consider it trauma. Why not? I do struggle with the fear of intimacy, mild anxiety, and low self-esteem, yet I can't imagine that what I went through growing up was that bad to be considered trauma. Ooh, the judgment. Ooh. Am I just lying to myself and actually have endured childhood trauma, or is it possible to have trauma-related symptoms without having experienced trauma? So we can have some symptoms of trauma, like of PTSD without having PTSD, but not, it's it's just like one or two things. And it sounds like to me, what you have is PTSD as a result of constant bullying. I would even potentially argue that you have complex PTSD because my guess is what your sister did was repeated. I mean, you don't talk to her anymore. She sounds like a really nasty bully and you were bullied for most of your childhood, which is horribly scary. Now, I, the, the definition of being tr- like of trauma is if we fear for the life of ourselves or someone else's, fear for our own safety, right? Um, or someone else's. Now, I have no doubt 
that you feared for your own safety and your own life at times with your sister because she was bullying you and that's scary and bullying shouldn't be downplayed like there is a sibling on sibling abuse again we kind of talk about it with regards to sexual abuse but physical abuse as well um, and even emotional bullying doesn't always mean they're physically abusive it, they could like you know emotionally be manipulating us and hurting us so yes it was trauma i would I would agree with your therapist, but here's another way to think about trauma, and this might help. My friend Alexa Altman talks about big T's and little T's. Now, big T's are not, you know, bigger or worse than little T's. They're all the same. It's just different versions of trauma. And I like it. I like to talk about it this way because it just it just makes sense to me. So think of little T's and big T's as waves in the ocean. Now, big T's are these huge, like hurricane-like waves that come in and sweep towns out and, and they're demolished, right? Big T could be something like uh catastrophic event, going to war, uh, you know, near-death experience, horrific horrific car crash or plane crash or sustaining physical or sexual abuse or emotional abuse for years as a kid, right? Those are big traumas. That's a big thing that's happened to us. And that wave swoops into our town of our body and our brain and pulls us out to sea. Little t traumas can be things like I had to move a lot as a kid and it was hard to get adjusted. Uh, my parents got divorced and then they got remarried and then the, one of them got divorced again. Um, you know, I lost, uh, one of my friends moved away at a young age. I was mildly bullied by a kid for like a couple of months in middle school. I, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of something else, but you get the gist. These are life events that are stressful, overwhelming to our system and we worry about our safety and our situation and our our world is just we're in a sense we're in a constant state of upheaval, right? These little T's are like medium-sized waves that come in, and as we're standing at the edge of the water and the sand, the wave hits us, and we kind of oh, kind of knocks us, ooh, and we try to get our footing, but before we can get our footing, another one hits, ooh, we get stumbled back farther, then another wave and another wave and another wave until we're washed out as well. Now, both big T's and little T's can lead to the same exact symptoms. They just look different. And not to mention, trauma is always in the, you know, it's commensurate, or I don't even know the word I really want to use. It's almost like it's in the eye of, you know, they would say it's like beauty's in the eye of the beholder. It's like trauma is in the brain of the person who it witnesses it and experiences it because it has a lot to do with our our resilience, our ability to like bounce back against things that happen to us. Some that's why two siblings can go through the same exact experience. One sibling's like, I didn't, I don't have any, I don't know, it didn't really stress me out. And the other is like, oh my God, I feared for my life. I was overwhelmed. I still am struggling with PTSD symptoms. Same scenario, two different people, two different levels of resilience. Some of it's things that we're born with, traits that we just have. Others are, you know, things we have to build. And so, unfortunately, some of us are just born with less and some with more. So that's what you experienced, I believe, because bullying is something that's just not, I don't think it's addressed in the serious fashion that I wish it was. And bullying is definitely trauma. The fact that you don't talk to your sister anymore and that you dissociated when trying to explain it, those are all flags like to me that would that would make me very curious about it and I would I would I I side with your therapist and think that it is trauma related. And so I hope that and you're not just lying to yourself. This is the last little bit I want to cover. You're not lying to yourself. Part of trauma is often a uh, a huge component of it is shame. And if you don't know what shame is, shame is when we believe something is wrong with us. And 
The reason that I bring that up is because when it comes to trauma, we often internalize it and try to make sense of what took place, right? And the only way we can make sense of things when we're younger is to blame ourselves. I must have said something, done something to cause my sister to do that. I should have been tougher. I shouldn't have allowed her to talk to me that way. I bet if I just punched her once, she would have stopped, right? We can have all these conversations with ourselves, all coming back and spiraling into shame that I did something to cause this pain, something's wrong with me. And this is why this happens. And I can't fix it. That's how, you know, shame kind of ugh, it wears us out, wears us down and makes us feel like shit. Therefore, because of that shame, we often believe that it wasn't that bad. I'm being dramatic. I'm just hypersensitive. Also, if we were emotionally abused or bullied, we could have been told those things too. So we internalize that even though it's not true. And we can tell ourselves those lies. And so, yes, in a way, it's like you're lying to yourself, but it's it's very common. It's kind of part of the traumatic and PTSD-like response. It's, it's how we try to process and, and move forward. Honestly, not even process, just like survive life. So no judgment. You're doing the best you can. You're hanging in there. Continue to hang in there. Your therapist sounds like they know what they're doing. I'm glad you have them. Talk to them about this. Let them know that, you know, you feel like it wasn't trauma and, you know, you're just lying to yourself. Like, talk to them about this because it is helpful to get some validation, some acknowledgement of the self-talk you're having about this. Maybe she can work with you to work, you know, use some bridge statements. Let's challenge those thoughts a little bit and work to heal because, Bullying is can be very serious. And yes, it sounds like that was definitely trauma. I hope that was helpful. I hope all the answers were helpful. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for all the comments below the videos. Thank you for sharing this podcast and leaving such nice reviews. It all helps. Um, yeah, you guys are just wonderful. So I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Don't forget to do something nice for yourself, something that just feels kind of good. Maybe just something makes you giggle. Let's do one of those things. And I'll see you next week. Okay, bye. Your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.